This is Rabbi Ethan Tucker with the Hadar Institute. High Holidays 5779. When repentance is impossible. We talk so much about the concept of tshuva at this time of year. But what do we actually mean? Are we talking about an internal shift in perspective or a series of very concrete steps? What is tshuva and how attainable is it? Let's turn to Rambam as we attempt to get some sort of an answer. Rambam's 10 chapters of Hilchot Tshuva, the laws of repentance, are an effort to organize and even codify what can be an otherwise amorphous area of Jewish belief and practice. He helpfully sums up his basic definition of tshuva at the beginning of chapter 2. What is complete tshuva, tshuva gmura, he writes. When a person again confronts a sin they committed, is capable of doing it again, but nonetheless refrains from doing so in order to repent, not simply because they're afraid of the consequences or too weak to carry out the act. For example, if a person had a forbidden sexual encounter with someone and then later was in private quarters with that same person in the same geographic area, still filled with the same lust and virility, but nonetheless refrained and did not sin, that is tshuva gmura, complete tshuva. But if a person only repented in old age, thus lacking the power to do what they would have done at an earlier point in life, this is not ideal tshuva, but it nonetheless counts, and such a person is considered a ba'al tshuva, a penitent person. Even if a person was a sinner their whole life and then repented on the day of death and died in a state of tshuva, all sins are forgiven. This passage in Maimonides lays out two different levels of tshuva, one ideal and almost heroic, the other perhaps incomplete but still meaningful and always available. Rambam starts out talking about tshuva as a kind of ordeal, a real-life test that recreates the original conditions of sin. This is very much an external process, one that requires clear actions on behalf of the penitent. He then pivots, however, to a tshuva that is fundamentally about remorse and renewed perspective, even if it comes at a moment when life no longer allows for making amends. Despite the term gmura, or complete, used by Rambam to delineate the plan A tshuva from plan B, this passage messily synthesizes two completely different and competing notions of repentance. So how can these two notions sit together? Well, on some level, they do not and cannot. Rambam here is interweaving two ideas that emerge from separate sources, never really intended to be articulated at once. The beginning of this Maimonidean statement is in fact a reworking of the following Talmudic passage. Hechidami ba'alei tshuva. What is a ba'al tshuva, a penitent? Said Rav Yehuda, it's a case where a person encounters a sin for a second time and is spared. And Rav Yehuda demonstrated his point, the same woman, the same period of time, the same place. Now, in this passage, Rav Yehuda clearly makes a general statement about repentance. Unlike Rambam, he doesn't talk about tshuva gmura, complete repentance, as if this is a higher or more ideal state of tshuva. Rather, Rav Yehuda simply articulates the standard for what regular tshuva is, encountering the same situation and emerging with a different outcome. 
and a hard standard it is. In fact, it is generally unattainable. How often are two situations we find ourselves in so alike? By setting the standard as succeeding in the identical scenario of prior failure, Ravi Udahir seems implicitly to be saying that it's very hard to take back things we have done. Remorse alone is insufficient, and therefore tshuva is elusive, and our attempts at it are likely to be ineffective. Ravi Uda gives voice here to the skepticism we often, perhaps rightly, feel when hearing people who are contrite for past sins go on at length about the introspection they have gone through. Anytime you've read an article about a sexual offender and rolled your eyes when hearing about the searching process they are going through, you're channeling Ravi Uda. Anytime we deny people the ability to rehabilitate themselves simply by saying, I'm sorry, no matter how genuine it seems, we reveal that repentance feels like it requires much more than remorse. And thus, unless we see a truly reformed person now acting on the side of good rather than evil, we can't take that repentance seriously. But that's not the whole rabbinic story. Is it ever? The end of this passage in Rambam channels a whole host of other rabbinic texts, particularly those found in the literature of the land of Israel, and they have a very different perspective. Consider the following from the Tosefta in Kiddushin. Rabbi Shimon says, If a person was wicked his whole life and then did shuva at the end, God accepts him. As it says, the wickedness of the wicked will not trip him up on the day when he turns back from his wickedness. Psikta de Rav Kahana, another text, relates the following. They asked wisdom, what is the punishment for a sinner? She said to them, evil will pursue sinners. They asked prophecy, what is the punishment for a sinner? She said to them, the person who sins will die. They asked the Torah, what is the punishment for a sinner? She said to them, let him bring a guilt offering and be atoned for. They asked the Holy and Blessed One, what is the punishment for a sinner? God said to them, let him do tshuva and be atoned for. These texts certainly sound a different note. Rabbi Shimon in the Tosefta not only opens up the possibility for deathbed rehabilitation, but speaks in completely interior terms about tshuva. The repentance performed here is clearly primarily mental and emotional, and the outcome is no longer a better world, but Kabbalah, or acceptance by God. There may, of course, be personal reconciliation to the extent that the sins in question were interpersonal, but the heart of tshuva is a change of heart. Psikta de Rav Kahana, an earlier text from the land of Israel in the classical period, emphasizes how tshuva is so different from other processes of atonement offered in the biblical tradition. Wisdom, embodied in the writings portion of the Bible, sees no way out of sin without some degree of suffering and punishment. If a person stains a tablecloth, no matter how bad they feel, there's still a dry cleaning bill to be paid. Prophecy strikes a similarly uncompromising tone, noting that a life marred by sin can truly only be unmarred when the circle of life has been completed. Even the Torah, which seems to resist punishment in favor of sacrifice, asserts that sin can only be accounted for through action, 
through a physical process in the world that concretizes the sinner's accountability. But Shuvah is in contrast to all of these. God, in contrast to the Torah, is said to offer a pathway that here can only mean a process of introspection and remorse. Now, who doesn't feel the pull of this voice as well? Why should effectively undoing the past be the gold standard for renewal? Aside from the difficulty of attaining Rav Yehuda's standard, it might be that sources like the Tosefta and Psikta de Rav Kahana are making a deeper philosophical point. Why should we treat human lives as one consistent storyline, where any given moment of life must be accountable to all the moments that preceded it? If you've ever read a letter you authored decades earlier, you know what it can feel like to barely recognize earlier versions of yourself. Doesn't God understand this better than anyone? And isn't Shuvah a process meant to validate this unevenness of life, leveraging it to allow us to become better versions of ourselves? If you listen, truly listen, to these two models, you will feel both their power and their incompatibility. Indeed, we often confront these two models in considering whom we are prepared to forgive. Ask yourself, aren't there offenses by others you simply can't let go, no matter how remorseful the sinner seems? Isn't the lasting damage people cause sometimes a permanent obstacle to imagining their rehabilitation? We might only know that such a person has been remade by allowing them to be in the same situation they were in in the past. And we are often, quite rightly, not willing to take that risk. And haven't you also ever been taken by someone's change of heart alone? The worst sinners sometimes capture our hearts with their renewed direction, despite a past that may stand for everything we reject. In those sorts of moments of acceptance, as described above by the Tosefta, we assert that limiting the possibility of rehabilitation through remorse threatens to crush our hopes for a better future and slam the door in the face of those trying to return. Now, returning to Rambam, it's noteworthy that he did not privilege one of these voices over the other. It would have been simpler to say that Rabbi Uda's position reflects a rejection of the view of Rabbi Shimon in the Tosefta. To elevate this later Babylonian Talmudic voice and to thereby choose a side in the debate. Instead, Rambam chooses synthesis, trying to find a way for these two dramatically different models to coexist. This requires some finessing. Ultimately, Rabbi Uda and Rabbi Shimon cannot share the stage at the same moment, but they might possibly be able to live on different floors of the elaborate spiritual structure that is tshuva. Rambam elides the conflict between these two by placing Rabbi Yehuda on top, situating him as an ideal, the tshuva gmura, complete repentance that we ought to strive for and to recognize as the only true way to achieve rehabilitation for a real sin that did real damage in the world. He insists, however, that the entrance to this building begins with the interior process of remorse, and God indeed welcomes in and receives anyone who goes through the initially difficult and significant process. This is a message for us to internalize as well. If we follow a similar synthetic path, in principle, we can't close the door to penitence. None of us wants to live in a world in which we cannot recover from mistakes, in which sinners cannot begin to contribute positively to the world once more. But we must never confuse that with full rehabilitation which is, perhaps tragically, 
simply not possible in many contexts, at least not through the work of our minds and hearts alone. The power of Yom Kippur, understood by our sages as a gracious gift from God, lies in our recognition of the fact that usually we ourselves cannot fully undo what we have done. We need God's forgiveness and atonement, sources of renewal that stem from beyond the human realm. For while we must embrace the power of remorse, we must always hold people accountable as well. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.